Let's pray together. Great God of heaven, we are so extraordinarily blessed to call you Father, to know that you have given us life, that you work all things for our good, that you are for us. All of these things are gifts, but the greatest gift that we have and the gift that has secured our adoption as sons and daughters of God is the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true light who has come into the world, the only man in whom there is no darkness at all. We confess, Lord, that we are filled with darkness, that our flesh is a pit of inescapable gloom due to the pervasiveness of our sin. There is nothing that we do, nothing that we think, nothing that we desire that is not in some way tainted by our sinfulness. We pray Lord, that we would not fall victim to the self-deception of believing on any level that we do not sin because the beginning of truth residing in us is the knowledge that we are sinners. We rejoice today and every day, Father, that you forgive our sins if we confess them and not just that you forgive us, but that you cleanse us from all unrighteousness in your sight. What an astonishingly incredible thing it is to know that you have taken our sins and placed them upon your perfect holy son. And in exchange, you have given us his perfect holy righteousness. We pray that our lips will ever repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. There are some among our fellowship, Lord, that are sick or hurting. We ask that you would bring healing and comfort to them. There are some among us whose marriages are struggling, and we ask that you would bring unity and love to them. There are many among us who are tearfully praying for the salvation of their spouses or their children, their grandchildren, or even their great-grandchildren. And we ask, Lord, that you would bring regeneration to their hearts, that that they would hear the gospel and repent and believe. There are some of our fellowship who are not among us today. Some of them are struggling with illness or infirmity and are unable to attend, and we ask that you would bless them and encourage them and cause us to strive to be a part of that for them. But Lord, there are also some of our fellowship who are not among us and have no valid reason. We ask that you would break them of their idolatry and hard-heartedness, Lord. Convict them of the sinfulness of neglecting to meet together with the body as you have commanded in your word. We ask that you would cause us to be content, God. It is dreadfully tempting for us to look at the circumstances of our lives and believe that we need more, or worse, that we deserve more. We pray that we would rightly understand that there is no more for you to give us, because you have given us your Son, that we would have all that we ever will need in him. Please grant that the cry of our hearts would be, as we sang a few moments ago, that Christ is our joy, our righteousness, and freedom, our steadfast love our deep and boundless peace. And that in that song, as in that song, we would be fully content in our lot in life, trusting that our good God has given us what we need. As we turn now to your holy scriptures, Father, please work a miracle in us. Please reveal yourself to your people this morning through this word. Please open our eyes and our hearts to see your eternal majesty and your tender love for your people. Please make us more like your perfect son. Please 
be with us. In the name of Christ, the King of all creation, we pray. Amen. Turn, if you would, in your Bibles to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 12 is where we will be. And today in our series through the book of Exodus, we arrive at the event that the book is named for, the Exodus. Throughout this book, we have been seeing the introduction of several important doctrines. We have seen sin and judgment. As we discussed previously, God judged the sins of Egypt through the plagues. We have seen the biblical doctrine of election. God rescued Israel because they were the people of his choosing. Abraham was not out in faith worshiping the Lord. The Lord said, you are mine. Last week, we saw the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Israel was protected from the final plague because of the sacrifice that was offered in their place. This is what's known as propitiation, because the blood of the Lamb turned aside the wrath of God. And in the introduction of the Passover meal that the Israelites are commanded to repeat every year, we also find the communion of God's people and sanctification because they share this meal together. As families, they share it together in their homes and they are all sharing it together at the same time in much the same way that the church gathers together on the Lord's Day, both here and in churches all over the planet, communing together as we celebrate our risen Lord. And we saw sanctification because they are commanded to remove all leaven, not just from the bread, not just from their homes, but from the entirety of their land. We'll, you'll see today that when they go into the land that the Lord is giving them, that when they celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, there is to be no leaven in any of their territory. Because leaven represents sin. And as Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 5, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And we should not tolerate sin in ourselves or among our fellowship. Because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. As one commentator puts it, to study Exodus is to learn the theology of salvation. And our passage that we'll study today is no different as we expound upon the idea of community and are introduced to the doctrine of redemption. The release of Israel from slavery was secured by the payment of a price. That is what redemption means. So as we examine the text together this morning, my hope is that we would see the Old Testament shadows of the New, Te New Covenant substance that we find in Jesus Christ. And that our understanding and appreciation for our salvation would be heightened. Because I fear that we far too often take for granted what Christ has done for us. And I know your immediate reaction to that is to say, that's, that's not possible, Pastor. 
That's not possible. I would never take for granted what Christ has done for me. But I would tell you that if you look at your life, practically speaking, there are probably many ways in which your life does not show the adoration that is due to Jesus Christ because of what he has done for us. So let's look together at Exodus chapter 12, and we'll start with verses 33 through 42, where we find the hosts of the Lord. If you got a a bulletin when you came in or picked up one of our sermon listening guides, you'll see that we have three points this morning, and that's our first one, the hosts of the Lord. So let's read together Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 33. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves." The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. When the Lord promised the coming of the final plague, the death of the firstborn, He spoke through Moses to Pharaoh and said this in Exodus 11, 8. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. This is on the tail end of the Lord through Moses explaining to Pharaoh that this last plague was not only going to be extraordinarily painful and tragic, but it was also going to be humiliating. Because not only was Pharaoh finally going to be broken of the hardness of his heart and finally tell the Israelites to go, but not only Pharaoh, his people were going to turn against him. They were going to turn against their own slaves and say, just get out, just go. And here after the plague has come to pass, we find this very thing happening. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. This again illustrates for us the perfect sovereignty of God as events that he has spoken continually come to pass. You may have heard it taught before that this is simple foreknowledge of God. That God knows what is going to happen, and he is just saying, I know what is going to happen. Here's the problem with that understanding. If God is not sovereign, any wrong turn changes everything. 
It's often talked about in movies that feature things like time travel, where they say, if you go back in time, don't do anything, don't change anything, don't even step on a blade of grass, because there's this thing called the butterfly effect, where all of a sudden these small changes are going to ripple outward, and everything in the future will be different. If the Lord is not sovereign and he simply knows, and we are free to just kind of flail about, if at any point anyone says, I'm going to do this instead of that, well, then the Lord's foreknowledge isn't all that effective or useful, is it? But instead, if we understand rightly that the Lord is sovereign in causing these things to come to pass, then what we understand is that the Lord's perfect prophecy is perfect because he has made it to be so. God is not up in heaven watching chaotic events unfold and trying to draw a path through it and saying, I guess this is how it's going to happen. God is saying, this is how it's going to happen, and then it happens. And the same thing is happening here. And we're told that the Egyptians are doing this. They are pressuring the Israelites to leave because they are in fear for their lives. They have watched as the Lord has progressively made their lives worse and worse and worse through the plagues. And finally here with the 10th plague, death has come to every single Egyptian household. He has killed the firstborn of man and of beast all throughout Egypt. And naturally, their thought process is, okay, things keep getting worse, and now God has killed the firstborn. If Israel stays here, is the 11th plague God killing everyone? It's the next natural occurrence, right? It's the next natural step in this evolution of plagues. And so they are in great fear. They believe they are going to die if Israel does not leave. Yahweh has said, let my people go. And they're saying, yep, we agree with Yahweh. Get on out of here. We're also told that the Israelites had obeyed the command of the Lord through Moses. We saw a few weeks ago that the Lord told Moses to tell the people, go out to the Egyptians and say to them, hey, can I have that jewelry? Hey, can I have that dress? And the Egyptians will say, you absolutely can. Here you go. And the Lord brought that to pass by putting, by, by elevating the favor of Moses and the Israelites in the sight of the Egyptians. The same people that once had complained that Moses made them a stench before Pharaoh now had favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and they were giving away their most prized possessions. All people had to do was ask for it. But notice the word that's used there. We're told that they plundered the Egyptians. There at the end of that first paragraph, thus they plundered the Egyptians. This is a military term. This is a term that is used after a military conquest, when the invading, conquering army goes in and takes the spoils for themselves. This language here is to make us understand that the Lord, without ever raising a sword, without ever mustering an army, has conquered the mightiest nation, the mightiest army in the world. Without a single battle, Without losing a single one of his people, he has conquered them 
thoroughly and completely, so much so that they are literally giving them gifts on their way out the door. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. They had also brought their unleavened bread. When the Lord told them to prepare the Passover meal, he told them, don't leaven your bread. Don't wait for it to rise because there isn't going to be time. Those of you who make bread understand that when you put leaven or yeast in your bread, you have to wait for it to rise because it naturally produces gas bubbles and over time it gets bigger and fluffier and puffier and it takes time. And the Lord said, you don't have time for that. And so they took their dough in bowls bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. They're just carrying what they have. And we're told that the people journeyed. They set out on this journey. And we're told that they went from Ramses to Sukkoth. We don't exactly know where these places are. Egypt wasn't super great at keeping detailed geographical records. And so we don't exactly know where these places may be. But what we do know is that it's essentially to show us that there is this column of Israelites walking through Egypt on their way out. It's tempting to think that when they left Egypt that very night, when the text is used in that way, we think, oh, they just walked straight out the country. Well, no, it takes time. If you have children at home, you understand it is literally impossible to say, hey, let's go here, let's leave now. That's not happening. Israel had more than a couple of children, or seven children, as Scott has. Israel had 600,000 men besides women and children. And on top of that, as this column of Israelites is walking through, we're told that they are joined by what the Bible refers to as a mixed multitude. As they walk through the land of Egypt, they are joined by Egyptians who were abandoning their false gods in favor of the one true God. There there are Egyptians who say, I have seen enough. And this is really interesting because literally they have just had death in their home. And now they're turning and saying, I want to follow the one true God. And so they are going out with the Israelites. They don't know where they're going, but they're going. There's probably also some other slaves who were feeling particularly bold in this time of Egypt's trouble. There's probably other slaves that are like, oh, well, if slaves are out of here, well, I'm a slave. I'm out of here too. I'm going to join up with these folks. And so there's this mixed multitude that is all exiting Egypt all at the same time. Scholars estimate that the whole crowd of them is probably somewhere between two and three million people. That's not a small group to go anywhere, much less leave an entire country with all of their livestock. And so they have to make provisions along the way in their journey. They have to take this this dough and make these unleavened cakes as they go. Now, that to us might kind of just pass by and be like, oh, okay, they're eating unleavened bread. All right, I get it. We need to understand the potential consequences here for Israel leaving Egypt very suddenly without time to prepare for a long journey. Because here's the truth. In those days, you would have to take time to prepare food or at least 
bring along ingredients to make sure that you had provisions along the way. But that was not possible because Israel was going to leave Egypt this very night. So they didn't have time to pack a bag of snacks. One of the things my wife does every time we go somewhere is pack a bag of snacks. Because as soon as we pull out of the church parking lot headed wherever we're going, both of my kids who can talk say, I'm hungry, immediately. It's like Highway 41 just makes, them, makes their stomachs rumble. And now, think about doing that for two to three million people. And recognize that there are no grocery stores. There's no gas stations where you can stop and get a four-week-old hot dog. There are no restaurants to stop and eat at along the way. You eat what you brought or what you can catch or kill. All they have is the dough in their mixing bowls that they have bound up in cloaks and their livestock. And you might think, oh, okay, well, they'll just eat the livestock. Well, the livestock is their livelihood. And if two to three million people are going to eat on the livestock, that's not going to last very long. Because they don't have refrigerators that they're towing around with generators attached. And so they got to eat what they got when, they, when it's ready. And it's going to run out pretty quick. Leaving Egypt in this way is absolutely an act of faith. We need to understand that. This in and of itself, just getting up and walking out of Egypt is an act of faith because they are saying to the Lord, we trust you to take care of us. We trust you to provide for our needs. We're told in the text that this happened 430 years to the day of when Israel came to live in Egypt. This is no accident. This is, not, this is not just a happy circumstance that just happened to happen when the Lord said, I'm going to bring you out of Egypt tonight. Oh, oh man, I just looked at the calendar. Guess, guess what today is? No, this was an intentional thing done by the Lord. It was an appointed time, so much so that we see in the text, in verse 42, it says it was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. The Lord specifically ordained this time to bring them out. And that is so important, so significant that Israel is to keep it for themselves as a night of watching year after year after year, which we're going to touch on more in a few moments. The second thing we see in our text this morning is found in chapter 12, verses 43 through 51, where we see a meal for God's people, a meal for God's people. Exodus chapter 12, verse 43 says this, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall shall sojourn with you and we keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. 
All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. So in our passage last week, we already saw the instructions for the institution of this meal called the Passover, that they are to keep year after year after year. And we come now to further instructions for the Passover meal. Old Testament narrative sometimes has this feature where it sort of circles back to things that have already been stated in order to add more context or expand upon them for one reason or another. It also likes to do this thing where it'll tell you one side of a narrative and then all of a sudden it'll jump back and tell you the other side of a narrative and we're reading it as though it's consecutive, but they're not. They're happening at the same time. If you've been in our adult Sunday school class as we've been walking through 1 Kings, you have experienced this where you see, oh, this happened in the kingdom of Israel and then like a chapter and a half later and then this happened in the kingdom of Judah and it's back in the same time period. And so what's happening here is what we see in the Old Testament narrative where it's circling back and kind of adding on top of something. As Israel continues with a mixed multitude as they go up out of Egypt, it is necessary for further regulations to be placed upon the Passover meal. And the first one is this, no foreigner shall eat of it. And at first glance, this might seem like a prohibition that is based upon race or bloodline. And in fact, some throughout history, uh, throughout the history of God's people have taken such prohibitions as exactly that, the Lord preferring one race or people group over another. But given our New Testament context, we know this, that this is, not to be, this is not the case, despite what some people have claimed. In Galatians 3.28, Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Christ. Jesus. When it comes to the people of God, there is not a distinction based upon your race, upon your gender, or upon anything else, because the reality is we are all depraved sinners who need the blood of Jesus Christ for our salvation. Jews do not need it less than Gentiles. Men do not need it less than women or vice versa. We are all on level ground at the foot of the cross, and that level ground is not a good place, just so you know. The issue at hand here when we talk about the institution of the Passover meal is not whether someone is of the correct bloodline or of the proper people group, but whether someone is a part of the people of God. That is the distinction here that is made. It has nothing to do with who your daddy was or your granddaddy was. It has everything to do with, are you a part of the people of God? That is why we see that the distinguishing mark that is listed out here for who may eat the Passover and who may not is this question. Are the men circumcised? That's the question. Anyone who is a part of a household of Israel and is circumcised, whether they are naturally born Jewish, whether they are a slave who was purchased, or they are a sojourner or an alien who is living among them, if they are circumcised, they have identified themselves with the people of God. This is traced back to God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, where we find this. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. 
You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So the sign of being a part of the Old Testament, Old Covenant people of God is this circumcision of the flesh. Kids, if you don't know what that is, go home and ask your parents. It is the outward sign that is a show of faith that that you are aligning yourself and your household with the people of God. In a very real sense, it is a way of putting your money or your flesh where your mouth is. Talk is cheap. These mixed multitudes that are going up with Israel out of the land of Egypt, it is very easy for them to say, we want to serve and follow Yahweh. Everybody talks a good game until until the knife comes out. At that point, it gets real. And so Moses is telling the people, if you are among us and you are going to partake of the Passover meal, you must be circumcised. Only those who were of the people of God were eligible to partake of his blessings in the Passover. This is why the regulation is added that the flesh stays in one house. He says, you prepare the Passover lamb and you eat it and don't take the meat out of the house. Why? Because the head of the household knows whether everyone in the household is circumcised. And no one who is ineligible then therefore can accidentally or purposefully get some of the meat for themselves. If I am the head of a Jewish household, I know whether everyone in my household has been circumcised. And so when we prepare the Passover together, I know everyone here can eat it. But if I give some to my neighbor, I don't know whether or not everyone in that household has been circumcised. I don't know if they are following the covenant of the Lord. And so I am not to allow them, I am not to help them in their sinfulness by giving them some of my lamb to partake of. Because maybe maybe they're circumcised, but maybe they've got some friends over who aren't. And they're like, hey, man, I'd really like to try some of that lamb. You think I could have a piece? Well, the answer in God's law is absolutely not. And so you must follow the regulations that the Lord has given them. This is also the case in the true Passover, the Lord's Supper that we share together to celebrate the death of our lamb, Jesus Christ. Only those who are of the people of God may partake in that meal. But it is not outward circumcision that matters here. Our signs of the covenant are different. Paul wrote in Romans 2, 28 and 29, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. One of the things that, has be, that is very evident in our Sunday school class as we walk through 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings is that just because these people are descended of the right bloodline, just because they are circumcised on the eighth day, does not mean that they are truly God's people. 
because God's people would not sin in the ways that the Israelites do repeatedly. And that's what Paul is saying here in Romans 2. He is telling, though, he is telling his readers, the Jews don't understand. The outward sign of devotion to God in circumcision is supposed to be a reflection of their inward condition. But it's not. They have decided for themselves that the outward sign is sufficient to be considered a part of the people of God. And so when we think about the Old Testament Passover and its, and its parallel in the New Covenant the Lord's Supper, and the death of Jesus Christ, we also need to understand circumcision in a New Testament way. Not in an Old Testament way, in a New Testament way. And so we have to echo what Paul says here and understand that the circumcision of the heart is what matters. And we know that as regeneration. When the Lord gives a new living heart to a dead sinner and makes them alive in Christ. Baptism is the new covenant parallel to circumcision. But the reason that we Baptists don't sprinkle babies is because we understand that if inward circumcision is what matters, if that's the real circumcision, then baptism is only for those who have regenerated hearts. And so, to, so too then is the Lord's Supper only for the true people of God and not simply those whose bloodline comes from those who are a part of the people of God. In the continual keeping of the Passover, the Israelites were essentially instructed to, as one author put it, grind the lenses of their spectacles on the truth of the Passover. If you wear glasses like I do, I've worn glasses almost my entire life. I got them, I think, in kindergarten. My mom can verify that. And I got the really big ones, which on my big head looked even bigger. And I looked really goofy walking around. But without them, I could not see. And if, if you ever have gotten glasses or needed visual aids of any kind, you'll know that they, they measure your eyes and they, they measure your vision. And then someone who is very skilled and knowledgeable takes the lenses of your glasses and they grind them in a specific way. And they put certain curvature in them and things of that nature so that as the light enters the glasses, it is bent and changed in such a way that my disgustingly terrible eyes can make sense of it. Guys, I'm not kidding. When I tell you my eyes are terrible, if I take my glasses off, I would not be able to identify a single person in this room. That's how bad my vision is. But with glasses on, I can see who is falling asleep in the back row. And so for the Israelites, they were to grind the lenses of their spectacles on the Passover. This was how they were to view their redemption in all things, with Passover-tinted glasses. So when the question arises, how will the Lord rescue us? The way he did in the Exodus. The way he did in the Passover. How will the Lord save us from his judgment and his wrath? The way he did in the Passover. We see this pointed to in, other, in the other new instruction we find in keeping the Passover. Not to break any bones in the lamb. Don't break any of the bones. There's no obvious reason for this instruction within an Israelite context. It's kind of bizarre. It kind of seems to come out of nowhere. So there's no real discernible reason why this instruction exists. But there is something for us 
as Christians in this. In John chapter 19, where we see the death of Jesus, we're told that since it was close to the Passover, the high priest wanted the crucifixions to end more quickly of Jesus and the other two men who were crucified alongside him. Because what happens in crucifixion, it is, it is a long and agonizing process where you essentially asphyxiate over time as your lungs fill with blood and you no longer have the strength to pull yourself up on the spikes in your wrists and against the spikes in your feet to draw in breath. And so it is intended to be as long and as agonizing as possible. Well, the high priests are like, hey, look, we got to get this wrapped up before it's time to get the Passover meal ready. We can't have this going on. So they went to the Roman soldiers and they said, can you go to the men on the crosses and break their legs? If you break their legs, they will no longer be able to push up and they will die more quickly. But when they come to Jesus, it tells us in verse 33, they see that he is already dead and they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. John takes this very random instruction having to do with the Passover here in the book of Exodus, where the Lord says, don't break any of the bones of the lamb. And John says, guess what? They didn't break any of the bones of the lamb. We are to grind the lenses of our spectacles on the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when we do that, we see things like this in the Old Testament as obvious pointers to Jesus Christ, just as John did. It's amazing. When you read the Old Testament with Christ-colored spectacles on, you start seeing Jesus everywhere. In the Psalms, it says, at the right hand of God, there are pleasures forevermore. Well, guess who's sitting at the right hand of God? Jesus Christ. The Old Testament is filled with things like that. Where when we look with Jesus-colored spectacles, we see these things laid out for us. And John references this as a sort of prophecy. He says this is to fulfill what is written. There doesn't seem to be any indication in the text that this is any sort of future prophecy. But John understands what Jesus told him, that all of the scriptures were about him. That brings us to the last part of our text this morning in Exodus 13. We'll read the first 16 verses where we see that we should remember the Lord's strong hand. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you have come out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. 
You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, he shall give it to you. You shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrificed to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. The Exodus is a redemption of God's firstborn son. This is how the Lord refers to Israel when he speaks to Moses in Exodus chapter 4. And as a result of Egypt refusing to free God's firstborn son, he kills all of theirs. God said, if you refuse to release my firstborn son to me, I am going to take away your firstborn son. And so in Israel, walking into their newfound freedom, the Lord gives a command to them. All the firstborn are mine. Every male that opens a womb is to be sacrificed to the Lord as a payment and a memorial for what the Lord has done in rescuing them. There are two exceptions that are given. The first being donkeys. You are not to sacrifice donkeys. Donkeys are an interesting animal in Israel. They have the distinction of being an unclean animal that Israel is actually allowed to own and interact with. They're, they're unique in that way. They have them for the sake of working the land. But they are not clean animals, and thus they are not to be sacrificed to the Lord. He has no desire for them. So they must either, A, sacrifice a lamb in its place. So if a male donkey is born, they are to sacrifice a lamb in exchange for that donkey's life. Or if they don't want to sacrifice a lamb, maybe they don't have one, maybe they want to keep their lambs for whatever reason it may be, they are to break the donkey's neck. They are not allowed to keep that donkey without a sacrifice for it, without redeeming it, because it belongs to God. The other exception is humanity. We are not, they are not to sacrifice their human sons. God hates human sacrifice. There are places that we find in the Old Testament where men sinfully sacrifice their children in one way or another. The Lord hates this. When a child is born, when a male child is born in Israel as the firstborn son, they are to sacrifice a lamb in its place. They are to redeem the life of their son with the blood of the lamb in the same way that they did in the first Passover in Egypt. 
as a commemoration for what the Lord has done and as a reminder that all of Israel belongs to him. It is a constant reminder of the goodness of God in rescuing his firstborn son from out of captivity. This is, as we touched on last week, why we see these repetitions that the Lord commands in the life of Israel. It's so that they would remember the works of the Lord. So they must keep the Passover, and they must keep the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. They must have this night of watching every year. They are supposed to stay up all night on the night where they commemorate the Lord bringing them up out of Egypt. And they are supposed to continue to do these things. They're supposed to redeem their firstborn children and sacrifice their firstborn livestock so that these things are ever before them. If every year they are having the Passover meal and having the Feast of Unleavened Bread and keeping the night of watching and they are sacrificing those who open the womb and redeeming them as they are commanded, all of these things that the Lord has done are going to always be right in front of their faces. That's why we see this language of the sign on their hand and the memorial between their eyes. You've probably seen that some Orthodox Jews take this literally where they put the little thing on their hand and they put the little thing on their face. This is figurative language. What we're supposed to see here is that this, the, these things that God has done are supposed to inform every action that they take. And they're supposed to color everything they see. Everywhere they look, they are supposed to see the works of God first. Again, this is that idea of grinding the lenses of their spectacles on the works of God. And they were to teach these things to their children as well. Because the coming generations have not seen with their own eyes what God has done in redeeming his people. They did not witness it. They did not live through the night of the first Passover where they heard the intense screaming and wailing coming out of the land of Egypt where every home experienced death. They didn't live these things. And so they are to teach them to their children so that their children would know, just as they know, what God has done in redeeming his people. These are constant reminders of the strong hand of the Lord that has brought the people of Israel out of Egypt. And we need these reminders. We need them. Because when we forget, we venture off into all kinds of evil and wickedness. When we forget who God is and what God has done, all of a sudden, everything is fair game. All of a sudden, all sorts of sin are on the table. Brothers and sisters, we need to rightly understand that when we forget God, that is the foundation of sin. Because when we remember God, we remember that He is the God that brought death to every household in Egypt because of their sin. That is not a God to be trifled with. But when we forget the works of the Lord, all of a sudden we think, well, I won't be in trouble. Much like a child does when their mom and dad don't see their misbehavior, they think, well, I'll get away with it. If dad never knows, I'll never get a spanking. And then you have multiple children and dad always finds out because multiple children come and tell you because they want their, their sibling to get in trouble. We must remember our redemption. In the same way that the Lord commanded Israel to, we must remember what Jesus has done for us. 
He came and lived a perfect life that we could not and died an excruciating, horrific death on our behalf that we could be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, that the judgment of God would pass over us and fall on Him. We must remember our redemption because it changes what you do and what you see. When you think first of Christ and you look out at your life, Everything is different. Everything is changed. I can't tell you how many people I have known that have come to faith in Jesus Christ. And I talk to them a week later, a month later, a year later. And I, and I say, how's it going, brother? How's it going, sister? And they say, everything is different. Everything is different. That's what Christ does. And so, brothers and sisters, the call upon us today as we consider the redemption of God that we find in this text is that we would grind the lenses of our spectacles on the work of Jesus Christ, that we would remember what he has done for us, and that we would be changed. Let's pray together. Father, you are great and glorious. You are infinitely holy and wonderfully perfect, and we are undeserving of your mercy and your grace, and yet, Lord, you freely give it to us. You freely Give to us of yourself, of your son. Father, we pray that you would work in our hearts today and every day, that we would see our redemption in Christ at the forefront of our eyes in every work that we do, and that we would be changed. Help us, Lord, in this time to devote ourselves anew to Christ and him crucified. We pray this in his name. Amen.